Okay, let's turn to session number four. Good grief, your pastor can sing. <laughs> That's a beautiful voice. <laughs> You're only allowed so many gifts, Chris, just so you know. <laughs> Don't hog everything. Dialogue is different when there's deep family intimacy, isn't it? I mean, it is one thing to hold a position. It is one thing to be in dialogue about your differences. And of course, we love whoever it is we are dialoguing with. However, when this is also someone who is a member of our family, there is a particular power to that conversation. And we feel a deeper level of emotional response in that conversation. And that is especially true when someone you love is gay. Let's look now then at how to respond when a family member comes out and says, mom, dad, brother, sister, son, daughter, I'm lesbian, I'm gay. And the question becomes, where do we go from here? I made that speech to my own parents Truly, when I announced to them in, I think it was around 1979, maybe 1980, I had been out for a couple of years, and I said, time to tell mom and dad, I did not want to make trouble. I was not trying to be a rebel. I was trying to be honest. My desire was to respect them by telling the truth. I didn't want to keep making up stories about who I dated last week or where I went or what I was doing. I wanted to be more authentic with them. I am obviously not legitimizing what I was doing, but my desire was to do no harm. I could not have known when I came out to them that I was turning their world upside down because indeed I was. I had no idea that it would lead to what I now call the death of assumption. Let me explain that. When someone we love comes out to us more often than not, we experience emotions that we normally, uh, normally associate with grief. That is to say, the person has not died, but we are grieving the death of what we assumed. When I said to my parents, Mom, Dad, I'm gay, it was the end of their assumption that I would marry, that I would have children, that my life would take a particular direction. And if you think about it, assumptions are critical to all relationships, aren't they? really to all systems. When you get on the road, you assume by and large that the other drivers are going to observe the same rules you are observing. If you didn't trust that assumption, you probably would never drive. You realize that some will not, but by and large you assume most will. So it is with assumptions about our own family members. We assume that their life will take a particular course. When we find out that assumption is not true, we experience the emotional cycles that are common to death. We feel as though we have lost something. We rage, we are depressed, we find it hard to believe, we rail against God, we rail against the person, we go through an emotional roller coaster the kind of roller coaster associated with grief and the stages of grief, which will include oftentimes stages like denial or anger or bargaining, depression, acceptance, the standard Kubler-Ross cycles that people often do um, uh, experience during grief. Now, this is not to say that as Christian parents, 
we don't assume our kids will have problems. Of course we do. We know that's going to happen. I believe we tend to assume they will have problems of a certain type. As a Christian father married to a Christian woman, I figured our kids will have Christian problems. If that isn't naive, I don't know what is, as if there is a Christian problem versus a secular problem, you know. There's Christian flesh and there's secular flesh, you know. And yet I couldn't help but think that way. Oh, yeah, they'll probably flake off on their homework. They'll tell a few lies. They might experiment with smoking, and maybe I'll catch them telling a dirty joke. But by and large, they will be problems within a certain parameter. This is not one of the problems I think they're going to have. Now, it's somewhat like movie genres, okay? You expect certain types of conflicts according to the type of movie you're watching. You're watching a Western. What sort of conflicts do you expect? Uh, Gunfights, uh, stagecoach chases, barroom brawls. You don't expect to see a spaceship suddenly land. It's a Western. It's not a Steven Spielberg movie. Why is there a spaceship and a conflict with aliens in the Western I am watching? Those two don't go together. When homosexuality hits home for many parents who are Christian, it's like a spaceship just landed in the middle of their Western. This was not a conflict I expected. I did not think because of the way we have raised our kids that such a thing could happen. And that is based, of course, on the misinformed belief that if we raise our kids a certain way, they are exempt from struggles with their sexuality, and that is simply not true. So what do we do when someone we love makes that announcement? Mom, Dad, I'm gay. I want to suggest two primary goals to begin with. Sustain the bond and join the work. Let me explain each of these. Sustain the bond, join the work. Sustain the bond meaning that you want to sustain a good bond and be a part of what God is wanting to do in your loved one's life. Remember, when you're sustaining the bond, your loved one is one of those things God entrusted you with. I mean, what God has entrusted us with includes the people he has entrusted us with. The people we relate to, the people we covenant with, certainly the people we give birth to, that's a trust from God. That's why it was very sobering to me when I married Renee and realized, okay, I am going to answer to God herewith, since I have made a covenant with this woman, for the way I have treated her. Because this, this is, I'm not saying she's on loan from God, but basically this was a daughter of God before I ever married her. I'm going to answer to her father for the way I'm treating her. So yes, I will answer to God for the way I treat the primary people in my life. So I want to sustain the bond. And I want to join the work. When I say join the work, I mean this. God is always working in each of us. Like Paul told the Philippians, it is God who works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. God is working in the person I love. By God's grace, I want to be a part of that work. Does God need me for that work? Good grief, no. Does God choose me to be a part of that work? Praise God, yes. Now, this, I think, is a mystery, and it's also a great blessing. God condescends to let you and I be a part of what he wishes to do in a person's life. And 
Me, I find that exciting. I find it sobering, sometimes even a little scary, but basically, wow, you would like me to be a part of what you wish to do in somebody's life because I'm going to fill in the gap that you can't fill because I'm necessary in this partnership? Of course not. But because you wish me to be a part of your work. Now, when I had kids, I started to get a little bit of a better understanding of that mystery because I've often thought, now, come on, God. You could have done better than this. You could communicate directly to people. You know, when you spoke on Sinai, it was pretty impressive. And I think if you would spoke audibly today, you know, hey, that might yield some good fruit. I know we can argue about what would or would not happen, but my point is this. God has chosen to communicate sacred eternal truth through very human, limited earthen vessels. Now, when my kids were growing up, I remember especially my youngest was very attracted to the lawnmower. You know, budding testosterone, noisy machine, of course. So I'm mowing the lawn and he was, oh, can I help? Well, Okay, <laughs> you know, and actually I loved it. You know, you put your hands here and I'll put my hands here and we'll march around the yard and mow the lawn together. Okay, now look, doing it that way took me about three times as long as it would have if I did it myself. And candidly, the yard looked a lot better if I just did it myself, you know. I didn't care. My son wanted to be a part of what I was doing. Wow, I loved it. And it was part of the bond between us. You're joining me in my work. And to this day, both of my sons have at different times actively participated in my work, come to speaking events with me, contributed to my podcast, helped me out with book sales. And to me, that's just, that's an amazing joy. So I can kind of get the heart of God when he says, I want you to know me, commune with me, and now be part of what I wish to do. Come on, be a part of where I want to go and what I want to do. Be a part of my work. Then I get it. Okay, now, Lord, this is a mystery and a great blessing and a great honor. You wish for me to be a part of what you want to do in my loved one's life. How are we going to do that? My loved one just came out to me. Three levels that I want to go over with you as you're seeking to join the work that God is seeking to do in your loved one. You want to stabilize the situation. You want to clarify and you want to dialogue. Let's spend the rest of this uh, session talking about all three. You want to stabilize the situation because it can be a volatile situation for everyone involved, right? Now, on the one hand, I'm standing up here calmly explaining what to say and what not to say when the son or daughter you love so much comes out to you. Well, avoid saying this and do say this and say it in the right tone. And there's a part of me that wants to go, yeah, right, buddy. When you're in the middle of an emotionally volatile situation, you don't follow a guidebook and say, well, step 1A says I should say this. Your emotions are all over the map. And there's parts of you that will want to scream, what do you mean you're gay? Are you serious? What happened? What did I do wrong? What are you doing wrong? How could you? How could he? What's the matter with me? And we are bouncing all over the walls. That's true. That's why I say stabilize the situation, including you. What you want to try to do is say, okay, I will admit that my emotions are bouncing from here to eternity. But I don't want this to be a damaging time for either one of us. Because you have entrusted me with some very vital information about yourself. You're making yourself pretty vulnerable to me. Darned if I am not committed to honoring that. Because this was not easy for you to say. 
And believe me, it wasn't. But you've said it. So I want to stabilize the situation. I want to strive to be calm. I'll take the proverbial deep breaths, but I will also be honest with you. I'm not going to get into a lot of play acting here. What you just told me is hard for me to hear, and my emotions are all over the map. And honestly, I can never tell you that I'm going to approve of homosexuality. I'm never going to celebrate a gay relationship. I'm not going to say that this is what God intended for you. But I am going to do my darndest to walk on the water here in the middle of a storm with you because I know this is hard on you and this is hard on me. So let's stabilize the situation. And then let's clarify some essentials. Okay, we know where we stand, I hope, with each other. I love you and you love me. And what you've just told me does not change everything I've already known about you. It really doesn't. My assumptions are not what they were before. But the fact that you told me about this part of your life does not negate everything I already know to be true. You are intelligent, you're aware, you're funny, you're delightful, you're gifted. We've got a lot of good history together. This doesn't cancel out all of that. It's a nice realization. So you know what? No, this is not the end of the world as we know it. It is not. This is hard, sure. But this is not the end. This does not cancel out all of that. So let's clarify the essentials. One of the essentials is positioning. What you have told me will not change either of these two things, my love for you or my love for God. I'm not going to compromise either one, and they are not contradictory. Nothing you tell me will cancel out my love for you. But nothing you tell me will persuade me to adopt a position contrary to the will of God because I will not have my love for him canceled either. My position is unmovable just as my love for you is unmovable. Well, let me clarify that to you. My position is unmovable, my love is unmovable, and there is not a contradiction between the two. Let's clarify the concept of respect with each other. We perhaps, we probably are coming from different places. Perhaps your worldview has changed. Perhaps you feel differently than you used to feel about a number of things. And we certainly disagree on this issue. In most cases, when someone comes out, they are saying, I embrace this. Not in all cases, certainly not. But the reality is there could be some disagreement during which you say, let's emphasize the concept of respect. The question is not, do we love each other? We know we do. The question is, will we respect each other? <sighs> will I take a deep breath as your parent and say, I recognize you're a free will agent as an adult? This is assuming the conversation is with an adult. And I do not exercise that kind of authority over you to tell you what you may or may not do or what you should or should not believe. Therefore, I must respect your free will as I respect you as a person. And I am asking for, even insisting on, the same respect in return. We will respect each other despite our differences, and we will love each other despite our differences. So we clarify the essentials, and then we get some redemptive dialogue going, which I want to look at in just a minute. So well, let's start again. The stabilizing means this is a very emotional time. If during that very emotional time of volatility, when you're trying to stabilize the situation, if you know now that you said the wrong thing, and we frequently do, don't we? I don't believe any parent who says, I have no regrets about anything I ever said to my kids. Wow, you must have been mute. 
How do you raise kids and not at some time pop off with something you wish you had not said? We get exasperated, we get scared, we get angry, so bleh, out it comes. My experience has been it is not permanently damaging when a parent says the wrong thing, but it can be permanently damaging if the parent says the wrong thing and never takes responsibility for it. So if a parent says the wrong thing, and boy, I've heard it all, I've heard of parents who said, oh, I wish you had told me that you were dying. I would have rather heard that than hear that you're gay. I'd rather you be dead. Wow. Well, I can't believe what an abomination you are. This is making me sick. I can't stand the sight of you. And there are Christian godly parents who have said all of those things. I know of it firsthand. And they regret it. Well, the good news is we cannot, while we cannot retrieve our words, thereby no, we cannot unring those bells, we can acknowledge, look, I lashed out at you in a tremendous amount of fear and anger and frustration. I was wrong. Please forgive me. Not only did I not mean what I said because I truly didn't, it was intended to lash out, it wasn't an informed statement, but I also deeply regret what I said because you didn't deserve that. So I recognize where I was wrong if I reacted in such a way. But I'm asking you to help, I'm, I'm asking you to understand something. What you just told me turned my world upside down. It shocked me, it frightened me, it angered me. Now, I respect the fact that you told me what you told me. I do. But it was hard to hear. I hope you can understand that. And because it was hard to hear, I reacted in the wrong way. Please forgive me for that. I do not apologize for the beliefs I hold. I apologize for my expression, not my beliefs. And then in trying to stabilize the situation, once there's that initial emotional upheaval, I find a great way to stabilize is to listen. To listen and to inquire. Listening and inquiring, those are two of the best ways to build trust with people. Because frequently, when someone we love comes out to us, they know that we are Christian, they almost certainly know that we are not going to approve of homosexuality. They are ready for us to start lecturing, to start preaching, to start basically imposing. And the irony of that is they probably already know everything that we are about to say to them. So it's very rare for a kid to come out to his Christian parents and the Christian parents say, well, don't you know Romans 1 says that is unnatural? Golly, Dad, no, I never heard that before. Gee, thank you. No, that's not the way it plays out. So oftentimes we're being repetitive when listening and inquiry are what's called for. For example, okay, you told me you're gay. How does that play out? I mean, are you involved with someone? Are you active? How did you feel about telling me this? How did you feel about preparing to tell me this? How do you feel about us now? How do you feel about God? What has this been like for you? Inquiry and listening. Because in doing that, we really do show, hey, I'm not just interested in changing you. Yes, I would like to see you change. I won't pretend that's not true. But I do want to understand you, and I want to know you even better in light of what you've told me. So I want to listen carefully to you, and I want to ask questions to better understand what your own experience has been like. And then out of that listening and inquiring, then you bring the safety. 
you reassure and you express desire. When you reassure, you are basically saying not just I love you, which number one, everybody says that, and, and that's not always true, but in, in your son or daughter's case, they probably already know that that's true, probably. What people often don't understand is we not only love them, we value our relationship with them. It can be very healing and reaffirming, very reassuring to hear from a parent. Our relationship is valuable. I am not just trying to convert your thinking. You matter to me. Yes, I have raised you a certain way. My prayer has been and will continue to be that you will always continue in the principles, in the beliefs, in the foundational doctrines I have raised you with, and I will never be okay with the fact that you deviate from those beliefs. That is true, but that does not mean our relationship is any less valuable. It is valuable. I want us to be close, and I want us to be mutually respectful. And yes, I will make no bones about this. I reassure you that our relationship is valuable, but I will reiterate this. Nothing matters more to me concerning you than that you be right with God. Just like John said, I have no greater joy than to hear my children walk in truth. The converse is true, isn't it? I have no greater fear than to hear my children are not walking in truth. So yes, I will make no bones about this. I will respect you. I will listen to you. I will honor the boundaries that we may establish with each other, but nothing will change my desire to see you walking in truth. Nothing will change my prayer that you walk in truth, and I will not pretend that it can ever be otherwise. Now, that being said, as level one, then we move to level two, which is clarifying, and this is an important level. We've stabilized, hopefully. We've reiterated where we stand. I have taken some time to better understand what your process has been like so far. I have told you not only the way I feel about you, but the way I feel about our relationship and ultimately my desire for you, which is unchanging. I will always want us to be close. Even more than that, I will always want you to be living in a way that is right with God and nothing will ever change either of those two desires. Now let's clarify, where do we go from here? More to the point, what do we want from each other? And I think it's a very valid question to say, okay, you've told me you're lesbian. You've told me you're gay. Can you now better help me understand what you are wanting from me? And really, that's a very legitimate question. And usually that's a question that our loved ones will appreciate. Are you wanting me to agree with you? Are you wanting me to approve? Are you wanting me to respect the fact that you have a different position? Are you wanting me to listen to you? Are you wanting to drop the subject? What are you wanting from me? My asking you that doesn't guarantee you I am going to give you what you want, but I want you to know I am interested in what you want, what you're wanting from me, and let me clarify to you what I expect from you and what I want from you in light of all of this. Now, this is an important distinction. It's not word games. It's just a little bit of change in spelling. There's a difference between what I want from you and what I want for you. What I want for you be close to God, live obediently, know the abundant life, walk in the light, run the race with integrity. That's what I want for you. What do I want from you, regardless of whether or not you're walking in truth? I want mutual respect. I want honesty. I want us to preserve our bond as best we can. That is what I want from you. 
But that does mean we're going to have to clarify where our lines are drawn with each other. And at this point, you probably will need to talk about those lines, which we often call boundaries. Our boundaries basically determine what we do or do not allow. That does not mean they determine what we do or do not like. In every relationship, you tolerate things you don't like. That's called maturity. But there are some things that we not only dislike, we won't allow, you see. And that's where the boundary line is drawn, is no, I cannot allow that. Where are the boundaries going to be determined with each other? And how do we decide what our boundaries are going to be? Um, in, in, now, on the one hand, it would be tempting to say, okay, so here's where you draw the line. Do this, don't do that. Say this, don't say that. But that does not take into account the individuality, the uniqueness of each situation. I'm more comfortable going with biblical principles. And in this respect, I'd like to go with the principle of conscience and comfort. They're both very important, conscience and comfort. Paul told the Romans, Romans 14, 23, whatever is not done of faith is sin. Whatever is not done of faith is sin. Now, there are some things that are clearly spelled out as sin, whether or not faith is involved in them. I could never, for example, say, well, I don't really feel that I don't have the faith to go out and rob somebody. Therefore, it's not a sin. No, that is a sin, whether I feel the faith or the liberty to do it or not. No, it's a sin. That's objective. But there are subjective issues which we decide for ourselves. You've probably got your own policy about what kind of movies you'll watch. You've probably got your own policies about, oh, any number of questionable, questionable or, or, you know, debatable topics. Do I go out dancing? Do I drink alcohol? Do I listen to secular music? Which secular music? Is secular music up till 1960 okay? After that, it's all of the devil. How do you decide these things, you know? Everybody makes their own decision. If it's not Motown, it's not of God. That's what I know. I mean, that's objective. Motown, yes. And some of the Beach Boys are allowable. Other than that, turn that thing off. There, I made it easy for you. Uh, you know, whatever is not done to faith is sin. Now, if I do not feel personally that I have the liberty to listen to certain types of music or watch certain types of movies, even if it's music or movies you'd feel perfectly comfortable with, I'm not going to impose that standard on you. I have no right to do that. But I must impose it on myself. I'm not okay with it. Therefore, I can't do it. And the converse might be true. Uh, now, I, I know Christians of very good will who would actually look at what I just said and say, Mr. Dallas, are you telling me you listen to Motown? Yeah, I even jog to it, so sorry. But you know what? I, I mean, I respect the fact that some Christians would say, no, I don't believe you should listen to that. Fine, I get it. But I'm not going to allow that to be imposed on me because I think that is a form of legalism and I'm not going to go for it. But... I do think that for each of us, we must decide what do I feel would be the right thing to do for my situation in my life, the policy of conscience. And there's the policy of comfort, certainly. Like Paul told the Romans, Romans 12, 18, as much as lieth within you, as much as is possible, be at peace with all people. Now let's apply both conscience and comfort to certain issues that could come up. If I had a gay son, I do not, but if I did, and he said, Dad... I am in a relationship. I would like my partner to come over and meet you. 
do I believe objectively that that would violate my conscience, that that would be a sin? I cannot in good conscience say it would be a sin. I would think, well, I don't approve of the relationship. Does that mean I don't want to know the person? That is not necessarily true. I might decide that, yes, my conscience would allow that. If my son said, could my partner and I sleep together in the guest room? No, you could not. Because Paul told the Ephesians, don't have any fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. Reprove them. I can't host what I know to be a sin. And he told Timothy, don't be a participant in another person's sin. Thereby, I cannot host a relationship in the sexual sense in my own home. I would have to say no to that. So there would be the problem of conscience. If I was asked by my gay son, if I had a gay son, dad, I am going to have a wedding with my partner. Would you come to the wedding? Now, let me qualify this by saying I know there is diversity of opinion on this question. There are Christian leaders who are very valid, very honorable, who I respect, and who disagree with me on my position on this. So with all of that said, I know that I would have to say no to such an invitation because I do not believe going to a wedding is the same as going to a social event. If I had a gay friend or a gay family member who was having a birthday party, I would be there with a present. Nothing wrong with that. If I had a gay family member or a gay friend who was graduating from college, I would be there with a congratulatory gift. No problem with that. But I believe that when I attend a wedding, my attendance, my presence is a statement of blessing. If I cannot say I bless this union, I don't believe I have any business being there. So for example, if I had a heterosexual friend who was married and dumped his wife for a younger woman and said, Joe, I'm gonna marry her, will you come? No, I couldn't because I could not with any integrity say I bless this union, I believe he's wrong. And while I might still want a friendship with a man, I cannot say that I would attend and by my attendance condone something that I do not condone because I believe a wedding ceremony is not just a social event. In fact, in olden times, your attendance at a wedding was seen as what they would call a witness of that union, bearing witness to it, and you were even asked as a group, do any of you see any cause for this union not to happen? And if you could not say that you saw no cause for it to happen, the question is, what are you even doing there? Just briefly, let me tell you a personal story you might find interesting. When Renee and I were engaged, I had very few gay friends left, only a few. Most of them, for obvious reasons, did not want to be my friend, and I got that. There was one male couple in particular who we had a good relationship, and I mean me and Renee. We had gone out to dinner with them, we had socialized with them, and they were good guys. I liked them, they liked us, they disagreed with us, no problem. But when I invited them to the wedding, they left me a message and said, Joe, we love and respect you. Mind you, this was 1987 when we married. My gay friends said, we cannot attend a wedding ceremony we don't believe in. We believe once gay, always gay. We love you, but we consider you to be a gay man who is marrying a straight woman, and we don't believe you should do that. We can't in good conscience attend a wedding we don't believe in. Okay, now obviously they were wrong about the nature of our wedding, but they were right about attending a wedding ceremony. And I thought it's profound that even they realized a wedding is a sacred event. If you cannot attend it and bless the union, I don't believe you should be there. So th that would be my take based on conscience. 
If conscience is violated, then no, that boundary has to stay intact, and I would have to say, no, I cannot do it. But there's also the comfort issue. I may not really believe that it would be wrong if I had, for example, a lesbian daughter. I do not have a daughter, but if I did have a lesbian daughter and she said, could I bring my partner over for dinner? I might not believe it would violate my conscience to do that. It's questionable. In some cases, it might violate your conscience. You might really feel, hey, in her eyes, that would legitimize the relationship, and she would see that as a compromise on our part, and for that reason, it would violate our conscience. Well, then you shouldn't do it. I might feel it wouldn't violate my conscience, but then there's the comfort issue. Would I just be sitting there gawking at them both? Until at dinner, I say something brilliant like, uh, do you want some ketchup on your lesbian over there? You know? Well... If that's the case, I think it would be stupid to have them over because I am so foundationally uncomfortable with the situation that it's going to make a mess out of everything. So I think you want to consider both of those in deciding what you will or will not do. Another very co uh, common question that comes up is if a transgender friend says to me, I know I was born biologically male, but I want you to call me Elizabeth, would I be willing to do that? Again, there are Christian leaders I know who have written on this topic and who have said, yes, you should honor what they are asking you to call them. It is a sign of respect, and it will open the door for more ministry on your part. My feeling is the attempt to identify as a sex you are not is a delusion. And if I call you by the name you wish to be called, I am participating in that delusion and for that reason, with love and respect, I would have to say, I am sorry. I cannot do that. I will never deliberately seek to offend you. But, and here's a, a point I, I think is useful to bring out to people. I would never ask you to violate your own conscience. Please do not ask me to violate my own conscience. Can we respect each other enough to do that? There are perhaps things I do that you do not believe in. I would be wrong if I tried to coerce you into doing them. So I will not do that. I will never ask you to violate your own conscience. I am asking you to show me the same consideration and let's work out how we can sustain our bond with that understanding. And frequently I find that workable. I know sometimes people will say, no, I won't have a relationship with you if those are the terms. And that can be the high price of having boundaries. I still think it is better to have them. So clarifying where the lines are drawn with each other. And then finally, leading to dialogue. Dialogue is a critical part in all of this. Once you've gone through the initial volatility and you've stabled the situation, and then you establish the terms, what you want from each other and where the boundaries are drawn, then the question is, okay, where do we go from here? Can we talk? Can we talk about this? I have said it before, let me reiterate it. Conversations are life-changing, absolutely life-changing. They can be. So a Pharisee comes to Jesus at night with some very honest questions, and they have a life-changing conversation. An Ethiopian is reading the prophet, and he doesn't quite get it. And Philip comes along and says, can we talk about this? And they have a life-changing conversation. Things eternally change through conversation. So they are critical. 
A critical part of conversation is inquiry, and that's why something I always encourage parents to ask is, help me please understand your process. What has this been like for you? One of my favorite lines from Shakespeare is from Romeo and Juliet, when Romeo is getting teased by his friend Mercutio about his unrequited love for Rosalind before he has met Juliet. And Mercutio is saying, oh, you poor lovesick idiot, blah, 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 blah. And Romeo says, he jests at scars that never felt a wound. He's laughing about something he's never been through. He has no idea what this is like for me. That's the way a lot of lesbian and gay people feel about us. You people talk so glibly about something you've never been through. I think most of the time they say that they are wrong, but I can understand why they say it. Because sometimes, I have been guilty of this, I think many people are, we can talk too easily about something we ourselves have not experienced. That doesn't mean we should modify our position on something just because we haven't experienced it. There's much I believe is wrong that I have never experienced. I'm not gonna change my position on it just because I don't have a first-hand knowledge of it, but I wanna be careful to respect the fact that I don't have a first-hand knowledge of it, and I'd like to better understand what has this been like for you? Because believe me, by the time your loved one comes out to you, that person's already been through quite a process. I mean, that person has already probably gone through the discovery of their own sexuality and their conflict over it. So you wanna help, or I should say, ask them to help you understand their process and help you understand their position. Can you help me understand what you've been through? Can you help me understand how you have arrived at your position? How do you determine truth? And finally, is ongoing dialogue an option? Can we continue this conversation without alienating each other? If we can, let's continue to talk about our differences and about our similarities and see where we find common ground and build redemptively on that. And if we cannot continue talking about this without pushing each other away, then let's hold on the subject and try to sustain our bond. What we are looking for in the process is four things, communication, consideration, conviction, and conversion. Those are the things we as Christian family members hope for when a loved one comes out to us. We hope for improved communication. At the very least, we hope that we will reach a point of better understanding each other and being better able to communicate. We also are hoping for better consideration. It's sort of like when Agrippa said to Paul, you know, you've almost got me convinced. I'm considering what you're saying. Good, we hope for that. Maybe my loved one isn't quite repenting, but my loved one is considering what I'm saying. That's a very good start. We look, of course, for conviction. This is why I often encourage parents and family members, pray for the Spirit of God to do what you cannot do. You cannot convict anybody. He can you cannot soften anybody's heart, he can. You cannot cause someone's faith to rise, he can. You pray for conviction. And finally, of course you pray for conversion. I want that loved one to be walking in truth. I want a conversion of my loved one's behavior. I want a conversion of my loved one's identity. I want a conversion of my loved one's spiritual life. If indeed my loved one is spiritually dead, I want conversion. I want my loved one to be converted from error to truth. And as I want that, I have to remember, and I'll close with this for now, if this is what I want for the person I love, I must recognize God wants it millions of times more 
than I do. And that's when I lock on to what Paul said. I know who I believed. I'm persuaded he is able to keep that which I have committed to him, including my loved one, against that day. That is the hope we land on when homosexuality hits home. 